Oh, it is starting. Okay. Yep. It says live. I see the live tag. I don't need to do anything there, do I? Um, I'm so I have the actual episode up in another screen here to there's gonna be some lag, so I'm gonna have to mute it. Yep. But I can watch to see if there's some uh let's see here. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on? Hold on. I'm no, gonna... I'm trying to watch it, but it's just doing the yeah, whole thing. A... Oh, I can see you. Let's see here. I don't know if I can see me. This thing isn't coming up. Okay, now I can see it. All right. Now it's live. Yeah, but I don't cool. see it. It's only showing you. It's not flipping back and forth. That's what I'm saying. Oh, it's not? Mm-mm. Oh, wait. Yes, it is. Awesome. It is working. Do your job, Google Hangouts. It is working. That's good. Except okay. I've got too much stuff back there. Oh, well. I see it switching back and forth, yeah. Yep, it is. So we're good. Cool. Everybody can watch us fumble around for the first couple minutes. Yep. Everybody being like, one person, my mom, watching yep. this. <laughs> then we can cut it out later. It'll, be, it'll all be good. Um, uh, so, yeah. yeah, welcome to Absolute AppSec, I guess. Uh, this is where the cool music goes that Ken's going to write in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> the cool intro music, right? <laughs> yeah, super cool startup music. And, mm-hmm. No, um, probably not. <clears throat> Although we did have some good, uh, I found that Western techno stuff that sounded kind of cool. Yeah, that's got to work. Got to work. Uh, so we probably should start off with like what this podcast is all about, why we're doing it. Yep. Um, so uh, I'll I'll dig in. And start um, basically. There, so there's a lot of security podcasts. Um, there are a couple application security podcasts. Big one though is really just Seth and I've been working in the industry for a while. Um, this is not going to be some sponsored uh, podcast or anything like that. This is just two folks who are going to invite other folks that work in the industry onto um, chat uh, to talk about relevant points, things that are going on. The latest, what's the latest one? The uh, Spectre and Meltdown, stuff like that. So whatever's topical. Also, just kind of a uh, you know, I, I want to say almost like a, a regular Joe, nothing super, I mean, obviously not super professional. So, uh, but uh, in the sense that, you know, we, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is we can say what we want um, and it's going to be opinionated. So uh, I think hopefully that that people will appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's it's more of a platform for us to talk about what's going on, get others' opinions on it in the application security industry, but also security industry in general. Um, but with that AppSec focus, where we've both been in the industry for a while, doing application security as opposed to you know red teaming or whatever else that you want to talk about. Um, right. And this is our very first episode, and we're just trying to figure it all out. I mean. 
we got YouTube live streaming, so that's a win. Yeah, it's going <laughs> if anyone is watching, right? Right. Um, so yeah. I, I mean, so that's the that's the podcast. That's basically what it's going to be. Um, you know, we'll we'll list out the topics and things like that probably on Twitter before we go into each of the different podcasts or each of the different events. Um, but by way of introduction, I'm Seth. Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Um, just do application security. I've done it for a number of years. Um, started out kind of as a developer and then moved more into the application security, um, security space, consulting space after that. Yeah, I'm so I'm Ken Johnson. Um, what is it? At CK Tricky on uh, Twitter. And uh, same same deal, minus the developer piece. I've been working in application security since 2000, so probably about nine years, uh, realistically. Um, I guess both from a blue team perspective. So for those that are or aren't familiar, it means working for a company performing defense, uh, as well as a uh, offensive. So as a consultant going in, finding vulnerabilities in applications, uh, writing up reports and fixing code as well. Um, done the developer. Well, so I say I didn't start as developers, what I should say, uh, but I have done development. So I don't know. Whatever that, I guess, hopefully that that, that explains it um, or explains my background. Um, and I think that's important because tonight we're, going to start this off with just some questions that have been bubbling to the surface for both for both of us from folks who are kind of trying to break into the industry uh gotten questions on you know hey how did you get started what, what should i learn how do i go about doing this and so we're going to address some of that tonight um and then just different uh q a topics so uh Seth, I guess I'll ask you how did how did you get started in um, this field? Like how how did you make the jump from I guess starting out as a developer and switch switch over to application security specifically? So, one of my first introductions into the like application security space um, you know, back in my early career, I was a developer at iOmega. If you remember the Zip Drive people. Um, and was working on their website. And we had an issue with the with the login form on the website where um, was vulnerable to SQL injection is what it boiled down to. Um, but somebody was cruising our site and was scanning it for security issues and actually put in a like tick and one equals one into the login form. Um, and the problem was that this loaded up all of the user records in the database into memory and caused the server to actually swap. So it performed a denial of service attack on the website because of the end one equals one. Uh, the thing throw, you know, it slowed to a crawl and caused all sorts of just kind of, I mean, like availability issues. Um, they would have been able to actually enumerate the database had they played with it and been more careful about it. But we noticed it because they did perform this denial of service attack. Um, and that's that kind of spurred my, hey, I, you know, I'm, I've been a developer. I was doing some admin work with those guys. 
um, and you know moved more into the application security space after that because it became more of an issue, right? It was very prevalent to our day-to-day -day work that, oh crap, we're not parameterizing these queries, we're not checking for user input, um, or we're not validating user input. And then um, it was from there that I jumped into my first full-time security gig uh, where I started actually doing penetration testing and web application testing um, for a bank, right? Um, that's that's where I made that jump. But it was that initial, hey, there's a problem with our website at iOmega that pushed me into the space fully rather than just kind of tangentially, you know, doing some firewall work and other things like that previous to uh, previous to that job. So, I mean, I have I have other security stories that we'll get into that go way back in the day when I was, you know, a wee young one in high school. Um, but we'll we'll get to that at a later date. So, what about you, Ken? What's your background? Well, actually, how did you get into it? Before I get into that, uh, so Jerry is on the uh, is on the chat, and uh, he claimed you're responsible for the click of death. I am so, not. <laughs> just wanted to point that out. Oh, great. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, gosh, actually, so I was at uh, last night, as a matter of fact, I was having this conversation with a guy uh, at the jujitsu class I go to. And we were talking about kind of the. It's he's not wrong. Like there are folks that are now going straight into security and that's, I mean, that's fine. I, I suppose. And, and I'm not, you know, downing that I'll say though, that, you know, for me and, and also for your background, um, one of the things that helps us having done, you know, system at system administration, network administration, um, software development, you know, those sorts of things that give you the fundamentals of how technology works. <clears throat> and I mean, you, you understand when you make changes, what, what could go wrong. You've seen some, you've seen some things, right? You have some experience um, before security. And so that was definitely my background. I was like a CCNA going on the path for CCNP was hoping someday to do the CCIE uh, network admin type stuff. Um, I, in 2007, I picked up a Ruby book cause I wanted to learn how to program. Uh, obviously I get called out for being a Ruby fanboy. Uh, realistically, that was just the first language I ever started writing programming or started writing programs in. So, uh, around the long of the, the short version of this very long story is, uh, while I was doing my normal sort of network admin, network engineering work, I also had picked up like hack, you know, hacking exposed and these various security books, uh, books on assembly, just things security related. So I had that already. Uh, I knew someone that um, basically had the same interest. Long, lo again, trying to make this this long story, very long story short. I ended up on the East Coast because it was essentially one of these deals where it was like, wow, you can get paid to to do security rather than it being like this side thing. There's an actual profession for it. And so that there was starting to be a profession for it. So I moved out to do, I think it was like VoIP, VoIP security and stuff like that. Um, but 
quickly, quickly with kind of the programming background, or at least like the, the interest in programming, um, as well as just some, uh, seeing like what the web's capable of doing, picked up web application hackers handbook. Uh, and that's pretty much where it kicked off for me. Um, just, yeah, I think that's kind of the, such a long story. It really is, but that's, that's the short version. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting. I mean, this leads right into the topic of how someone gets into the application security field. And I think that, um, exactly what you were talking about from a, you know, understanding how things work perspective leads into the security space, you know, leads into a career in, in the security space. Right. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I call back to those early days of supporting an application in a production environment. Uh, when I, when I'm, in an assessment and I'm trying to figure out how developers have done something or how DevOps people have implemented certain pieces of an application because it just makes sense after you've you've been the one to do it, right? If, you've ha if you have to support something like that, you understand the gotchas, which also means you understand the weaknesses and where a developer or where a sysadmin will take shortcuts, right? Um, and they will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so jumping straight into the space out of college, I'm always a little leery to basically say, Hey, guess what? You should just come and start doing assessment work. I mean, that's, that is a valid way to get into it. But like, you know, when you and I were working in the consulting space all the time, we always said that the best application security people were ex developers because they understood that and they have that background. Now, it doesn't mean that they you know, had to have a full-time development background, but just being able to understand how a developer puts an application together uh, says a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, even just doing, so just even, I mean, contributing to open source, you know, just on one project, just, con just contributing some code, just writing. I mean, it's funny because you'll hear security people say, well, I'm not really a programmer, but I, I you know, I, I write some scripts. Well, that's programming, you know, that's, that's still programming some software to do something. So contributing, writing code, contributing to projects is certainly, if you want to do application security specifically, that's a, it's a great way. Um, and to your point there, when I was consulting, there's definitely been times where, I, where we'd have these conversations and you're brought in by the security team, but you're kind of looking at the security team, like, uh, I don't think you guys understand what you're asking. I've been on those phone calls. I know you have, and you're, you're sort of like, ah, maybe, maybe you don't have a background in, in, in this so much. And that's just the, that's just the reality. So, um, that, that I, that I've come, the experiences that I've had and I know you've had. So yeah, it definitely helps to have some, um, background. And what's funny is now, um, whereas we, we probably would have said, I mean, there, there would have been a time where it was more like, you know, bare metal experience, right? Servers uh, for, for the sysadmin side of the side of the house. Yep. And now we've got AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. Um, and really, I mean, AWS has been, from what I've seen, fairly, it's been a dominating force in cloud uh, services. So 
knowing, you know, you can set up your own AWS for relatively low cost and, and uh, set up your own, your own AWS environment, put some code on a server, um, just mess around and create your own little lab. And it's not expensive, but at least you then have some background and you can honestly say I've done some work to this extent with AWS. Well, and that, I, I mean, you talk about that bare metal experience, right? That, that, is pretty much the bare metal experience nowadays when we start talking DevOps is what platform you are using for hosting your code. Right? I mean, back when I was at iOmega, it was you know a whole bunch of Sun servers and you know Solaris running on top of those so that we could install Tomcat or whatever you know, Java server we wanted to to actually run the application. Um, with some sort of backend database, but nowadays it's it's still that si the same components. They're just in a different place. And the operating system that we're we're dealing with is still Linux. It's still a, a form of Unix, um, but you know it's it's a virtualized instance on top of the Amazon platform. Um, and having the experience of actually going in there and starting up your own server is fairly critical if you want to go in and tell someone how to secure their application because that's all part of it. We talk about you know, uh, infrastructure as code. I mean, really it's infrastructure as an application nowadays, right? Um, when, you, when you start talking about GCP and Azure and Amazon. Yeah, it's just some, it's just basically just glorified config files and then you've got infrastructure spun up. I mean, that's, that's all it is. You, you know, for those that aren't familiar to, you can literally build a network in minutes uh, with a couple files that one or two files, right? It just depends on the platform and what you're working in. But um, yeah, it's just a big blob of saying, hey, this is how many instances, instances being a machine. This is the size I want. Here's the network kind of architecture I want. It's not that complicated. And you push it up and you've got infrastructure in seconds. And so yeah, what Seth is saying, I mean, that's that's actually become, that's something we're definitely going to have to have an episode on, uh, just kind of explaining the challenges and also the solutions to things like that, or at least what we've seen work. Um, but Jerry brought up a good point on what you were uh, saying, which is it's so it's not only it's not only that you recognize with that background why a shortcut might be taken, but having empathy. And by the by the way. We, we should definitely invite Jerry on. Jerry, Jerry's been doing uh, some great work for a long time on the defense side and the offensive side. Um, so we definitely have to, Jerry, we're going to, we're going to send you, we're going to try and get you on here. Just so you know. Yeah. Just fair warning. Right. <laughs> um, um, yeah. I mean, so when you talk about the cloud stuff, right. I I've been, it was just today, right? I was spinning up a new like instance in AWS and, you know, marveling at the fact that from bare metal to actually having a, you know, an instance running up with an application and code all pulling from GitHub. I, mean, it, I think it took me all of like five to 10 minutes, right? Um, whereas that was a, that was a task when I was at iOmega and we were trying to stand up a new server that would take days, if not weeks when it came from, came down to, hey, we've got to order new blades for this, Solaris or this Sun system to actually, you know, spin up a new instance and then configuring and all of that that goes into it. It's it, it's pretty crazy um, when you think about how easy it is nowadays. Um, 
anyway, I, I mean, well, it, I it guess the, the problems, right. Sorry, go ahead. It just also in introduces other problems. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the interesting part is that, you know, you've, to, on that point is you have developers who are pushing infrastructure in some cases in other cases you got dedicated ops departments and they're they're just taking what they already knew and applying that to a different platform but certainly when you've got developers pushing uh, infrastructure um and i don't want to put out a blanket statement saying like oh developers don't know that's not true i mean there's definitely uh developers who've done it all i mean just like we we're talking about with security people to have a uh you know kind of diverse background so I'm not going to say all developers can't push infrastructure, but there are certainly some that, you know, they're still at their, at that point in their career, they're copying and pasting stuff from stack overflow. Right. I mean, just to make stuff work and not to say that we haven't all done that, but um, you know, that's <laughs> maybe doesn't have the background to be pushing an entire um, infrastructure, but certainly has the capability to do so. So. Yep. That's a challenge for new people coming in, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, as far as, yeah. I, I mean, we definitely we've kind of gone down the road of cloud instances and, you know, what we're, what we currently see in the industry. Uh, we got a little bit away from learning about application security or getting into the space. Uh, and so that's, that, that's maybe where we should go next, right, is, you know, from your perspective, Ken, you know, somebody new coming into the field, whether that's a developer or a student, you know, what what would you recommend that they do? Where do they go first to start learning about security? So I'm looking, I'm thinking about it from maybe a, a holistic standpoint. So first, I mean, we talked about the fundamentals and I, I honestly believe that that is just a requirement for doing this stuff. I mean, when I say this stuff is like really anything technology related, whether security or not, definitely helps with security to have that background. So whether it's, um, like I said, you know, pick a language, start building things that you want to build for yourself. Like maybe there's something you can automate. I don't know. Maybe you're on Twitter or you're on whatever platform and you feel like, some, having some task that you want to automate, um, whatever it may be, and uh, you know, write a script for it. Start there. Uh, what I would say is also, like I had mentioned before, get into a, an open source project. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying, hey, come work on this project I work on, but for instance, uh, with Rails Goat, it's an OWASP project. And I know there's other OWASP projects that would be happy to have any help that you can provide. And uh, I certainly, if someone submitted code or said, hey, I want to help on this, wouldn't be like, hey, you know, uh, no thanks. You don't have enough experience. No, it's open source. Feel free. I, that's great. That's the point. I want people to learn. So, and that, you know, that's just one example. There are tons of OWASP or just security projects that are open source that you could work on. So, start doing that. It'll give you some it'll give you an introduction to working with GitHub or Git. Um, just the Git protocol, doesn't matter what you're using um, to host your, what platform you're using. Git matters, right? It's a good, it's how you do code control, uh, code, it's how, it's how you have source code control. So like versioning um, and uh, how you manage yeah, you have to to that code. There, right? is, that, is that right? You work at, Git, GitHub. Yeah, well, so I'm, yeah, I kind of, 
<laughs> a little bit of a well, I'm trying not to not a not conflict of interest, right? So the Git protocol itself, though, a ver, a source code versioning. Yeah. Um, so you would know at that point, you would know how to work with a, one of these platforms. You know how to work with the Git protocol. You'd know how to communicate and work on a software project. And I say open source because it's you, you don't have to have a job in that whatever, you know, in a company or whatever to work on it. You can just contribute. And that gives you at least the understanding of how to communicate with folks, how to have a process like forking a repo, making changes, submitting that up and whatever the whatever the process is that that open source project's using. So those are kind of the fundamentals. Um, then on top of that, what I would say is there, like when you and I did it or started out, I I can honestly say that maybe some of the stuff I did was in a gray territory. And that's because there, there weren't bug bounties, right? If you wanted to find Vulns, you just, you had to like hope that whoever you told, if you told someone about it, um, didn't take action against you. I mean, really that's, or, I mean, I don't know if it's even worse, but you know, just never reply back or say anything. And really there was always this air of danger. If you're testing a live site, right? Whereas with bug bounties, you can pick up the web application, web application hackers handbook. You can pick up the Tangle web, recommend both. You can download a free version of Burp Suite, which is, or Zap, whichever you prefer. I use Burp Suite. I think most, a lot of people use Burp Suite. Uh, read the book, learn how to use the tools, understand what you're doing and, uh, get rocking on a, you know, signing up with bug crowd or hacker one or one of these bug bounty uh, companies, get an account going, and then you have some live targets you can start testing against and you won't get in trouble. So, yeah. And, and uh, Jerry brought that up as well, right? You know, that there are opportunities to learn nowadays through the bug bounties and through, you know, intentionally vulnerable applications like rails goat that there's no reason why you need to go scan google.com or for, you know, vulnerable sites, right? Um, it takes away some of that gray area that we've dealt with in the past. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, back in the day, that was, that was almost the only place that we could learn and see instances like, uh, you know, like the SQL injection, like the problem that we saw at IMA when I was there. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, the, you know, the learning of the application, the application security space or, you know, moving into it has a lot to do with what your interests are, right? Um, and where you feel like you would, uh, you would thrive, right? What's most interesting to you, right? I, you know, so I look at Ken, I look at the, the work that you've done on Rails Goat, and it was obviously an itch that you wanted to scratch that was something in your backyard that you wanted to play with. Um, and application security nowadays can encompass anything from, you know, web apps to mobile applications to, hey, I've got this new webcam that I've loaded up for security reasons. Maybe I want to poke around with their web admin utility there, right? So it's almost like IoT or Internet of Things security is uh, in addition to like the normal code that we saw in the past. Right. Application security is such a broad spectrum nowadays that you can almost specialize within application security. You can get good at, you know, multiple aspects or multiple languages within the space. Yeah. And for those that, I mean, 
if they're not like we should probably take a step back and define application security for a second um in the sense that you know maybe people kind of have heard the topic i mean if you're here maybe you i don't know follow one of us on twitter or whatever the case is um or you know like i said uh so this this video is going to be posted later and uh might have mentioned that but this we're obviously going to put this recording up on on youtube so whoever ends up seeing this uh i don't know how you found 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 it but if you don't know much about application security here's a basic breakdown so when we talk about web application security we're talking about we are doing security in the land of we'll say http https right web protocols um what you can think about that as is you got a website whether we're looking at the source code that powers that site or whether we're testing that site in its running environments, meaning let's say it's uh, zippity-doo.com. Well, we'll fire up our tools and we'll go at it with, uh, go at it at uh, zippity-doo.com. Um, so that'd be a, a live, we call that dynamic uh, analysis. So if you hear that term, that's what that sort of relates to is testing a live site. Just a mobile application security. So mobile apps typically still uh, can communicate over web standard uh, protocols, but if it's if it's an application sitting on your phone and it's communicating over the web, uh, the interesting thing is that you now have two different sort of main attack services. One is the remote endpoint that the mobile app's talking to. So whenever you open up Facebook, it's talking to Facebook servers. That's the remote endpoint. Uh, when you're using the Facebook app on your phone, that's the app attack surface. So whatever it stores on your phone, how it stores that information, there's a whole host of things that can go wrong with mobile applications. And it's just like Seth said, it's a very niche sort of specific um, field that you can specialize in as well. And then everything else, when it comes to internet of things, um, that term's pretty popular. I think most people know of that. Again, Anytime we're using, I would say some web protocols and some get a little dicey on whether or not they're um, wh what you would consider a web protocol, but it still falls typically under the, the application security spectrum. Does that sound like a decent, I mean, is that a good breakdown of, of application security? That's kind of what we're doing is looking for vulnerability, vulnerabilities and, and fixes for those vulnerabilities in those platforms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime that there's some sort of custom code that's written, I mean, if we if we call back to this last week, like uh, Spectre and Meltdown, right? The new, you know, vulnerabilities that just came out. Um, technically, you could classify as that app as that as application security because somebody wrote some code that's running in the chip itself from Intel that is not checking for authorization boundaries, right? Um, but since it's not custom code, it really falls into one of those other kind of network security or operational security buckets. Um, so, I mean, traditionally application security has been, hey, we're looking at custom code um, that has been written. We can actually see the code, interact with it in a running manner for the dynamic assessments or actually view the core view the code from a static security or a static analysis perspective. Um, and then we're looking for vulnerabilities. We're going to identify them somehow. We're going to teach you how to fix them, or we're going to talk about how to actually go about mitigating those threats in those applications. If we look at the 
traditional OSI model, right? You know, you're looking at a network stack. Um, we're not necessarily talking about the first few layers, right? We've got to get up to layer seven where the application and that custom code lives. We're not attacking things like the networking stack. Um, and a lot of the protocol analysis, we don't necessarily get into that. It's the stuff that's running on top of it that we're concerned about, right? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, totally. That's a good uh, detail breakdown for that. Yeah. And I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I yeah, I was just going to say that it's, um, I mean, realistically, security is security is security. Um, so these are really broad terms that we're dealing with. And um, your expertise, wherever you're coming from, you can typically apply somehow, right? Whether or not it's, uh, you know, hey, I'm coming as a developer, so I understand how somebody built the application, or I'm coming in as an administrator, I know how networks are built and firewalls, they stand that up. Hey, you're probably more dealing with network security, but there's still some operational and some application security aspects of things that you've dealt with that you can probably apply. Yeah, and I mean, once you've got sort of that, uh, so, some of that understanding and that that background, I, I think one thing that it's interesting, you know, with with applications, I keep saying I mean, this show's about appsecs, or you're gonna hear that term a lot, um, but it's it, it's it's actually harder for us to find people than it is i would i believe for folks who um at least in the us right I, I can't speak to abroad but in the us we have a real hard time finding people that can do this work and when i say can do this work it's all about knowing some of those things we just talked about ETFs, capture the flag competitions, participation in that, participation in open source projects, understanding code. Um, and again, if, if you don't have the opportunity to work in that professionally, like development professionally, find a way to help out on open source projects. That's going to that's gonna help you out. Those things on a resume to me stand out and say like that person is like genuinely interested in this stuff, they have at least the the passion and a bit of the background, and that honestly, right there, along with you know, obviously there's there's you know the person you 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 need to interview them, you need to uh, find out how they think, uh, what motivates them, you know, but those things definitely stand out, and it's and it's again, it's a very hard thing for us to do is to find folks who like want to do this for, for a living, but also show the initiative. Um, so I, I, I would say, don't be, don't feel like it's a daunting thing. If you're kind of starting out and you're trying to trying to get into this field, it's, it's, it's just as hard for us to find you all. Um, or I would say it's harder for us to find you all than, than it would be to get into this field. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's traditionally what we've seen is that, the companies that are hiring, it's very difficult to identify those people that have a passion for security, right? And it's not just a job. But once you're once you start following the different players, you'll you'll notice it pretty quickly, right? The people that are talking about it all the time, that are 
interacting on Twitter. I mean, this kind of goes to the next point that we were talking about, you know, where do you go to monitor the application security industry, right? Uh, the, the, the heavy users of, you know, Twitter and medium that are in blogging and, you know, like the, and Reddit that are on those platforms on a daily basis are the ones that, um, have a passion for it and you start interacting with them and it's hard not to also be passionate right um it is difficult to get started but you know my, my recommendation would be hey you have an itch you have something that you're interested in go figure out how to you know monitor somebody's git repo for changes right something along those lines and do it yourself rather than depending on a different tool you know, learn how uh, someone could go about doing something. Yes, you may be reinventing the wheel uh, in some aspects, but most likely if it's an itch and a gap that you see, uh, others have seen it as well and will appreciate the work that you do. And then, you know, tweet about it, talk about it. They're, you know, people are pretty forgiving because they know what, they know what it takes to actually put themselves out there, right? Um, you know, both Ken and I have, you know, spoken at big conferences, but we've spoken at small ones as well. And we know how much work goes into actually psyching yourself up to go on stage, right? even in front of 10 people. Yeah. And I can personally say I have wrote some of the, written some of the shittiest code on the planet and put it out there on GitHub. And you know what? <laughs> I got feedback and it wasn't negative. It was, you know, here's maybe we can optimize this way. I mean, Seth, you, you were there for, for my first major open source project. I mean, <laughs> that was, some, I mean, there were times where I was just writing shit code, but, but I wrote it and learned from it. And there was not like, Oh, I'm so afraid that I put out my code and it's not the most wonderful. Yeah, no, it's not. It's free. I mean, if you don't have a huge background in it, all right, well, you're going to improve and people will give you feedback. And honestly, don't worry about other people. Fuck them. Like you do you. So put in the work and uh, get involved and don't worry about what, uh, what other people think about your code. Yeah. Um, if they're being assholes and they're, that's just them. But the rest of us are like, cool, you're doing something for the community. That's awesome. So, yeah. Well, and that's where I'd go back to, right, is, you know, figure out where the community exists, right? Where where do people live on a daily basis? Um, I mean, you know, from my perspective, you know, Twitter is, I mean, it's still where it's at, right? It's still where people post their blogs. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple mailing lists and things like that that you may want to subscribe to. But the majority of what I, what I see on a daily basis is either, you know, kind of the the reddits of the world and Twitter, right? Um, people post their research on Twitter all of the time. Um, and then we could talk about conferences and other things that you could attend. Um, and even like local meetups, uh, that's, it becomes very interesting as well. You bring up a good point about blogging. Blogging is an awesome way to get started as well. And again, um, you may feel like, cause I've, I've heard from folks before and, and it's a good point. It's like, well, I don't know if, what I want to blog about is relevant to other folks. I don't know if what I'm blogging about is even cool enough to blog about. And uh, that's a fair assessment. I mean, obviously you don't, you don't want to put out garbage, right? I mean, you, you want, but I can honestly tell you um, for like 
I think a lot of my original blog posts were just on how to use burp more efficiently. Right. And it was just stuff that, you know, I picked up in my day job and I just said, Hey, maybe somebody be interested, interested in this. Um, and that was, you know, that always, that always worked out well. Um, and so find something that you're doing that is just kind of fun for you and blog about it and see if, uh, something that was then see if other people find that, find that helpful as well. So blogging, is definitely helpful. And to your point on Twitter um, today, I swear I saw this I'm trying to find it. Uh, it was, she, uh, she was asking, basically it was, Hey, uh, you know, I'm looking for a, uh, for a new, for a new place to land. Um, here are the reasons, like some couple good reasons. And um, I, Last I checked, and this was maybe a couple hours ago, there were there were something like 158 retweets from secure from like people that are fairly well known in the security industry. <clears throat> so you're right. I mean, that's a that's a good place to go to uh, involve yourself in some conversations, or even just follow folks and um, see what people are talking about. Yeah, I I mean, and that's just it, right? It, there is an aspect of putting yourself out there to actually get involved um, that all of us have had to overcome at some point, whether that's, Hey, guess what? I have to actually tweet at someone to get a response or to ask about things, or I've got to go speak, or I've got to go blog. I've got to put out my ideas and realize that everyone started somewhere. So there's, there's no shame in that. And, and the people in the industry that, uh, I mean, pretty much everybody in the industry is going to accept that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I want to find some links. Maybe I can find a link to, there's this mentorship program. <sighs> I've heard about it. Um, if I can find out more information, I'll definitely post it along with this YouTube video so that folks can get some, um, some mentorship and, you know, hopefully here's the thing about mentorship that I can honestly say. So like, uh, yeah, there are bad mentors, but there's certainly bad mentorees. I don't know if that's the right vernacular, but what I mean by that is, um, so I've I've heard. Well, hey, my my mentor told me to go read this book first, and yeah, that could be a them blowing you off and you know telling you know, hey, go do this whatever, like it's low effort for them, but it's probably not. The reason I say that is that again, uh, I've handed people the web app hackers handbook, which is like 800. I don't know. It's like, it's a, it's a pretty big book. It's like 800 pages, something like that. And, uh, said, yeah, you should read this all before, <laughs> before we, you know, before we really get into, to web application hacking specifically. And, uh, I meant it. I mean, a lot of um, a lot of what you need to know, at least the fundamentals, can be gleaned out of that book, and so that gives you a base to work from there. I'm not saying you're, you know, obviously, uh, in no way saying that one book is going to teach you everything you need to know, but it's a good baseline. It's a good sort of place to start. Yeah, and that's that. That's what everyone has to realize, right? I mean, um. We talk about it as kind of old hats. Um, the, the whole security baseline to us is 
the stuff that we've been dealing with for 10 plus years, right? Um, but at some level, you've got to understand that. You've got to understand how an application is put together and then two, kind of what the issues are, right? You know, if we start talking about SQL injection, you don't know what that is. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be harder to have a conversation about that on Twitter if you don't understand um, understand kind of the nuances there um, before you ask about it. Most likely one of us would point you at either a site or a book saying, hey, guess what? If you really want to talk about this, go check out the site on, or go check out OWASP.org and their description of SQL injection or even Wikipedia first uh, before we have, we jump into the specifics of why this framework is falling apart when it comes to SQL injection or, you know, something like that. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. There is a there is a baseline that goes into it, but that doesn't mean po people won't point you in the right direction um, as you're coming in new to the industry. Yeah, and I think that's sort of when so earlier when I mentioned they have a passion for this. I'm not thinking about like an unhealthy passion. I should say they because that word gets abused for mostly for people trying to make money off people. What I mean is. Uh, for a lot of us that are in security, uh, we came to this, like me, I didn't know there was going to be a job for this. This is something I did in my off time. It was just something I liked. Um, I got lucky that there ended up being a uh, field for this that allowed me to not go to jail <laughs> for doing fun stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, and I think that's the story for, for a lot of us. Um, and so when you see someone that's willing to put in that extra legwork, um, because they they just really enjoy the idea of saying, you know, I'm going to look at something that someone thought was going to do something. And I found another way to make it do something else that, you know, I can use to game the system, right? Like that's a pretty cool feeling. And it's also um, takes a lot of work to get there to learn how to do that. Um, so yeah, when you see people that are excited about that, it's pretty good. Uh, pretty good indicator that they're they're a good fit i think yeah yep yeah definitely it is i mean there's that the whole passion aspect that we talk about and the whole i mean we, we've ended up talking more about that on this or during this hour than i necessarily expected but that, it's fine right you know because it is it's fairly critical to being in the industry and excelling in the industry right um, i think we all have run into people that, you know, in one job or another that, you know, fairly sharp guys or whatever that, you know, they view it as just a job and that's fine. Right. Um, but those aren't the ones that are true that you're necessarily seeing out on Twitter, posting things at all hours of the night because they saw something in interesting and they wanted to share it with everybody else. Right. Um, this is actually a reason I think Jerry needs to come on. Cause if you watch Jerry, like he is, I mean, he's always doing something like he'll come back from the weekend and, you know, Hey, over the weekend, I built some awesome code that does something pretty cool. Um, hacks into, I think I've seen it. I've seen a lot of Docker stuff. I've seen a lot of random, uh, whatever problem that Jerry wanted to hack on over the weekend. And so he'd be a good person to kind of bring on and talk about that stuff. So yeah, we I, definitely, yeah, we should we're be bringing you on Jerry. We'll talk to him. Maybe we'll get him on here next week and just kind of continue that conversation. Um, For sure. Know. 
Because I, I mean that, that that'd be interesting as long as people are interested in in, in it. I, I mean, the other thing that we can do as we move forward, right? Obviously, we'll talk about current events. Um, I, I do want your opinion on Meltdown Inspector before we get done tonight, Ken, because uh, we really haven't talked through it. <laughs> but um, you know, uh, the current events, the you know, the different application security topics. Um, we'll probably be addressing the OWASP top 10 and, you know, how the new one's coming out now and that kind of whole uh, cluster that was um, the new the new list as it was coming out and what the issues are around that. Um, but realistically, I'd, I'd like some interaction from the community itself, right? Uh, you know, if you're watching this, let us know what you want to talk about, what you're interested in. Uh, do you want us to dig into the specifics of, you know, a, a, a vulnerable application, um, do you want us to talk about SQL injection or cross-site scripting and do a deep dive into one of those? I don't think either of us are opposed to that, right? Yeah, I mean, to dig into like latest frameworks, you know, what what the trend is, I mean. Yeah, and I mean, we'll talk about things that it. we're playing with as well, right? Um, you know, for those of you that don't don't know, um, I, I do uh, the Hacker Tracker iOS application for DEF CON, right? It's the... Uh, DEFCON is the big security convention that's in Las Vegas every year um, during the summer. Um, and a couple of years ago, again, it was just, I was there at the conference and I was like, crap, there's no schedule on my phone and I'm sick of carrying around this packet, right? The the paper schedule. Um, and so I, you know, I, I worked with a couple other people, but we developed the, uh, the iOS application for the conference um, and scratched that itch. Um, but I'd be more than interested in talking about, you know, iOS development, mobile app development, and where security pl plays when you are developing something like that, um, because that's you know that's that's where my again my passion lies, right? That's the stuff that I'm doing outside of the day-to-day -day job. Um, but we can talk about the frameworks and stuff as we're that we're working and that we're seeing um, in our jobs as well, because that could be interesting to people also. Yeah, I think we're going to have some basic topics to cover and then just end up doing a lot of Q&A as well. Um, and some of it is just kind of shooting it, right? I mean, um, open it up to people to kind of talk about whatever questions they may have. Um, and then we're going to have guests on, obviously, people that are doing something, you know, whatever, uh, friends, people doing interesting things that want to come on. Um. So I think I'm willing, I, like, I, if you're ready, I'm, I think we can go into the, like, the meltdown inspector stuff a little bit um, before we kind of sign off. If anybody has any questions, feel free to ask them. We'll try to get to them before we sign off. We're only doing these for an hour, so we get about 15 minutes left, I think. Um, so we'll get, yeah. we'll get to what yeah, we can get to. So, yeah, so let's, let's talk. I mean, you know, obviously this last week, Meltdown Inspector from Google Project Zero, right? Um, basically, there are flaws in the Intel chip design, right, or the Intel chip processing that allows um, running code to see memory of other running processes, right? Um, so what what is your take, number one, on how those actually work? And you know what the real risk of that is, and what the threat is that we're seeing in the application security space. Well, 
so firstly, let me say reading, um, reading the like non dumbed down version, uh, basic, sorry, let me mute my phone. Hold on. All right. And if you haven't seen this, we'll put a link to the, the meltdown site. It's just, you know, uh, or the meltdown attack.com or specter attack.com. Right. Um, I'm to start writing all these links down. So I might yeah, remember. Yeah. We'll have to re-listen to it. So we know what to write down. Right. We probably should note that as we're walking through this. Um, but we'll get to it if we can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, there's a fairly good description in there, but it does jump into low level kind of chip design and um, processing design within the processor itself. Right. Um, so it's not for the faint of heart by any stretch. No, that's what I was going to say. Firstly, I mean, I felt like an idiot reading the like huge breakdown. I just had to reread because I mean, uh, that's not necessarily like my forte, right? Um, so like working at that level with processor code execution paths and how that all worked, that was, uh, yeah, like, I don't know for you, Seth, but that was, uh, that was, a, that was a rough read. <laughs> it's uh, humbling. But yeah, so I, it is, it is, um, or it was. So... My honest take is that uh, like the bigger the bigger issue is the performance hit that the patch gives. <laughs> that's like my that's my real take uh, on. Uh... But yeah, so if, if so, should we explain that? There's I think there's three different ways that it uh, that that all this goes down. The basic gist, like what's the super summarized way? Uh, basically, due to a flaw in the way um, code is processed. Uh, by the like there's am i think amd chips uh intel and I, i'm sure i'm missing something else there i don't know there's again like a there's a whole link to all that um but the basic gist is it allows for you to bypass um as long as your software is running locally um it allows for a bypass of security controls and allows for privilege escalation i guess that's the Hopefully that's the like that makes sense and that's the super summarized version. Um, and they're different in the chips that they affect as well as the uh, attack methods. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting something. There's definitely uh, another big way that they differ between spe Spectre and Meltdown. Yeah, so uh, Meltdown itself is the um, uh, order by... Uh, what do they call it? I mean, it, they're both based on the speculative execution functions of a chip, which is basically how the chip tries to, uh, if you look at the, the layout uh, of the architecture layout of a um, chip and how it actually processes instructions, um, it queues things up and it actually does multiple things at the same time because there's so many different pieces to the chip. So as part of that, Intel has designed a feature to basically say, hey, if um, if we have all the resources available, right? there's no reason that we shouldn't execute something on the addition proce processor of the chip at the same time as we're executing something on the multiplication processor of the chip, right? Um, and then, so this is talking about a, you know, a chip pipeline 
Um, and what happens is when we do that, they may execute something that a person is not allowed to do or not allowed to load up specific memory that's within the system that is running on that chip. Um, and that won't actually get disallowed or error out until after the, the main process has executed. And so you're taking advantage of this fact that you're running multiple things um, before the execution engine is actually checking whether or not you're allowed to do it, right? So that, that's meltdown. So you can read basically system memory because of this, because of this flaw in the chip design. Whereas Spectre is more process memory driven, right? So you're looking at other processes that are running on the chip, whereas Meltdown, you're looking at system memory that's running on the chip, right? So that's the main, you know, difference between the two attacks is kind of the different memory that you're trying to, to get a look at, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense. Uh, I mean, I think that that was a pretty good explanation because if you go down into the weeds of how like read each one of those papers that they released on it and, uh, there's, yeah, there is a paper per, per each of these named vulnerabilities. Cause they've got like a branding site and, uh, logo logos and everything. I'm always curious. Where do these people get their logos at? I need to Google. How do I find, I'll check that out later. Yeah. I'm trying to, I want to find some cool logos for vulnerability. Logo, uh, but yeah, yeah. What's that? Logo as a service dot com. Yeah, that probably exists. I'm sure. It, well, I mean, I know there's like Deviant. Is it Deviant Art or something like that? I don't know. Anyways, they get these cool little logos. They got a branding site, and on there they've got the PDFs linked. And yeah, reading through those, um, your version of it made made sense. Um, so, so how does that affect us, right? So from an application security perspective, we're talking about, you know, low level level chip attacks. Why are, why are you concerned about it? According to CNN, it's like an apocalyptic event. So pretty serious stuff. So how does it affect like me personally? Well, I mean, what I would say is that there's been a lot of discussion on, actually around the performance hit of making these types of changes. And I'm not going to say if that's at work or if it's elsewhere or whatever, like you can, there's mystery there. We'll say, but um, it's definitely, it's definitely a big factor in what's the risk. Like what's the real risk. And are we going to have, cause you have to remember, you have to have user user somebody's code a foreign actor's code the, the person who would be would be the would-be attacker it needs to be running on your machine now of course like on your macbook or your windows laptop um that's a different situation you're you have tons of apps running that are developed by somebody else but what i'm talking about is when you think about it in a professional sense when maybe the only purpose of that box is to run a database server or something like that. And in that case, then you start to have to look at what's the likelihood that user supplied code or user developed software is going to be running on my box, right? Uh, and, and I should say untrusted code, really, that's what I mean, untrusted code. Because that performance hit 
I think they originally said the benchmarks were like something like five to 30%. But I think one of the tests was just running. It was like, it wasn't a good test. It was something to do with cycling through loop, like uh, a loop on, I don't know if it was pinging local host or I don't know, some, something silly like that. It wasn't a great test, but still uh, from what I understand, the performance hit can be fairly drastic. So that's really, it's, it's almost like one of those situations where you really needed to, what I can, what I can say for sure is that there, there are definitely folks who are operating in AWS. And I know this because, you know, obviously we chat in the community who have had to bump up their AWS instances because of this performance hit and like, it's going to cost money. So when you say, how does it affect people? That's how it affects people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. And from any, anywhere that you're submitting code and someone else is running that code is probably what you need to be concerned about. Right. So that's why all the cloud vendors are super or hypersensitive to it is that's their, their whole business model is we stand up a server, we allow you to run this code. Um, but if that code can jump out of the hypervisor, so it's running on physical hardware at Amazon, that it can see system memory, guess what that system memory is? It's anybody else that's running on that same bare metal, right? Um, and so they have to implement the fixes, otherwise, uh, someone who's attacking Amazon would be able to see other people's code, other other people's secrets that are running on that processor at the same time, right? So, yeah, it's it's going to cost money. Um, you know, you'll probably see Amazon actually make more money because of it, right? Um, which is crazy. So that, that's using Amazon, you know. But yeah, I totally expect for that to be the case, right? Um, but. Like as I look at the other vendors that are out there, and like it, you know, me as like someone that's developing something, um, I, I, I mean, I'm going to take a look at Amazon and see what they're doing to prevent it from happening, right? Um, but I'm also going to start being more aware of other services that do the same thing, right? If you talk, if you look at any like software as a service that has some sort of like an API, or if I can provide some sort of binary that will run within their system. Uh, that could also be vulnerable to this. Like if you look at some of the bigger software as a service providers, whether that's Salesforce or, you know, somebody that is taking developer code and then running it internally somehow um, or compiling it is realistically where that's going to start happening. Um, That may be of concern to me as a developer as to whether or not they've patched or they've thought about it on that level. Right. Um, Make, it gets really interesting when you start talking about serverless functions as well, right? Because it's not really serverless. There's still hardware that's running that code somewhere. Um, so if I can figure out a way to do the same thing in Python or you know another scripting language or JavaScript, right, Node, um, I could potentially see other people that are running serverless architectures um, and see what their secrets are and what they're doing. So, Ooh, that's a good point. That's a really good point with the serverless. Uh, for those who need to need to look that up, uh, or an example of serverless, um, AWS is Lambda. I don't know anything about Google Cloud and Azure on that front, but uh, that's definitely a Lambda is definitely the the one that I think a lot of people are using for serverless. 
Um, but yeah, that's a really, that's interesting. Cause you're right. You are sharing. I mean, all of that, all those, uh, cause it, again, like for those that aren't f- familiar serverless, meaning, Hey, I'm going to have like some code that does this one thing. And every time for whatever reason it's triggered, which could be somebody just making a request to like a, a URL, we'll say, right. Could be a trigger for that, uh, and up do something and then spin down well because it's just this micro function that's occurring it doesn't take a lot of hardware to run it it doesn't take a lot of anything to run to run it uh it can be done pretty quickly and uh then that is that is deallocated in the sense of usage cpu usage memory whatever the case is um so they that that is shared those functions from your company from other companies that's that's shared so what I'm saying is that he brings up a really interesting point, really interesting point about the fact that something like that could be a good place to pivot out and see whatever, see the other code that people are running. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, you know that Amazon will have patched that, right? That's, yeah, for sure. For sure they will. Um, but some of those smaller providers that are trying to be more agile, right? I, I mean, I'd be really leery and I'd make sure that I'm talking to those providers, right, to make sure to to see whether or not they've patched, what their thought is as far as um, dealing with that vulnerability specifically. Um, you know, Jerry uh, talks about he brought up a point about how AWS makes their money on over provisioning. So I mean, it's it's basically they're shoving more and more VMs um, on the same hardware, right? And everybody is sharing that same hardware. Yeah, how many how many companies are running their EC2 instances at seventy <laughs> percent? He asks. Um, you're right; most people probably aren't. But you know, if I am running at forty percent utilization, and now all of a sudden I'm running at seventy percent, that would cause me to buy a couple more, right? I, like I don't want to be on that line. Um, I, I mean, I, I shiver to think about what Netflix's, uh, like what their Amazon bill looks like, right? Because Netflix is hosted in Amazon and, you know, 30% for them is significant. I mean, are we going to see a monthly fee increase just because of Meltdown Inspector? I'm uh, like a 99.9% sure you definitely will. Um, so, anyway. but uh so it's, so it's something you've got to be concerned about. Sorry, what were you going to say, Ken? Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, I, I know that people were underwhelmed by the response from from AWS about this, but um, I, again, I can't really speak. I haven't, I mean, yeah, I've done stuff with Google Cloud, but I mean, you know, I'm not sure what the other, what, what other providers' um, responses to this whole thing look like. Well, I was actually looking, Google was very similar to Amazon, right? Where they're like, hey, well, we patched our hypervisors, but you need to be make sure you need to make sure that your own systems are patched, right? They're not going to go through and do that for you. So I feel like I had heard, maybe I shouldn't speculate, but I do feel like that was the kind of the the part that some folks weren't happy about was that it wasn't clear on AWS's side that you needed to patch your O and like, let's make that clear. You need to patch your OS period. Like there's, there's 
uh, this whole notion of shared res uh, shared responsibility. I believe that's what it's called. Um, meaning some pieces of your infrastructure, you're responsible for, for handling and some pieces are handled by the provider. And uh, that's patching, like if you're running Ubuntu, right? You should be patching that. Um, but that's, that's the interesting yeah. thing, right? I mean, as of right now, I think if you go to Ubuntu's response, like, yes, the Linux kernel has the patch in it, but guess what hasn't released yet, yeah. right? <laughs> I did not know that, obviously. <laughs> uh -oh. wow. I'm going to look it up really quick. But as of yesterday, when I was looking at it, I, I was surprised, right? Uh, Ubuntu updates that they weren't, they hadn't actually pushed that into, um, yeah, in, into the list yet, right? It was like, hey, guess what? Four dot whatever kernel is patched, but you don't, you're not getting it quite yet, right? Yeah, it says right now, Ubuntu users of the 64-bit x86 architecture can expect updated kernels by the original. January 9th, 2018. So, I mean, we've we've had exposure there until today. Is basically what yeah, it I'm is. Looking at, yeah, I'm looking at that right now. Uh, which is, uh, which I'm, was, I'm reading when them. I started to look at the different uh, Linux distributions, that's what I saw, was they hadn't pushed that kernel all the way out yet. So you had to be pretty careful about, hey, go and patch right now, because if somebody went and ran an app get upgrade, Right, they wouldn't actually catch it yet, right? Unless they were paying attention to what was going on. So, anyway, yeah, I found that interesting. And then you have the problem with uh, Microsoft as well, where they patched and it ended up breaking like AMD processors that weren't x86 based, right? And they were blue screening because they didn't they they pushed out the patch so quickly that they didn't test it on all the architectures properly, right? The whole response to this has been has been one of those interesting ones to watch because it hasn't been great. Well, and that's where empathy comes in, right? A yeah. little bit of it goes a long way. Cause if you understand how difficult, I mean, this shit is hard, you know, it really is. It's not. Um, yeah. So I mean, from an application, from like an AppSec perspective, we want to push those patches out as soon as they, because it is something we're depending on somebody else for, um, but you got to make sure that you are getting it in a timely manner. So. Oh, we could talk all day long about the software that we have to depend on for an application to run in the security ram ramifications of yep. that. I will definitely have to, gosh, well, maybe we should have a framework and dependency episode. I'm, the, the ideas are flowing, I think. Yeah. Well, ideas. let's, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's probably a good place to cut it for tonight. And then if people have questions, feel free to submit them. Um, we'll, we'll look at just doing this. I mean, I, I'd like to do it on a weekly basis. I think that'd be good just to have a, uh, you know, an informal discussion. And if people are interested, I mean, Ken and I are always around. So I think we'd, we'd love to talk and we'll get people on. Um, but we'll, we'll announce a little bit more on Twitter as we get set up for next week. For sure. Well, we don't have any official outro, so. Cool. All right. Well, you know, if you're online, Jerry, thanks for listening. Um, and anybody else that's mom. out there. No. Thanks, mom. Appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Ken, I'll, I'll see you all online. You know, hit us up on Twitter. All right, cool. All right, well, have a good night. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.